may turn in your pew Bibles to page 976 if you're using a pew Bible. Otherwise, if you're using your own Bible, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We're building off those first seven verses. We were in verses 8 and 9 last week. We'll be in verse 10 this week. By way of an introduction, a a number of you would know, I don't know, 20 years or so ago, I started uh, in my own, I keep getting new Bibles, and then I color them up with colored pencils, so sometimes my family makes fun of me that I use coloring Bibles. Uh, And it started off kind of a simple project where I didn't color that much, but the last Bible I just finished, it took me about two and a half years to go through it because I'm coloring a lot, too much. Uh, It's not like I color every word, but I colored quite a bit, and it takes that much longer. Trying to, it's just a good way for me to pick up themes, and I probably use about, I don't know, at least 30, maybe 40 different pencils. Different shades mean different things, and it's not perfectly consistent, but I tell my kids, like, when I'm I'm dead, they'll all can have their own Bible that's colored up and pre-colored for them. Uh, it's not a perfect process. I, I just got a, I have a Holman Christian Standard Bible that I just started about a month or so ago, and I'm coloring a lot less. I'm determined this time, like not so many colors, keep it simple. I, I don't want to take that long to go through another Bible. And I do it with different translations, just it's a way to familiarize myself with that translation. So all that to say, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, if you were going to color your Bible, and you wanted to keep it really simple, you could reduce it to two very simple things. And the colors I'm going to use on the screen aren't exactly what I would do in my own Bible because it doesn't necessarily translate really well to a PowerPoint slide and what you're able to see on a screen, but it's not far off. It would look something like this. You would color in verse 1 where it says, and you were dead. That is, if you're summarizing all of verse, those first seven verses, the first part is, and you were dead. And then the next thing you would color in your Bible would be, but God made us alive, which is in verse 4, and then you've got to kind of skip a clause or a phrase to get to made us alive. That's all of verses, those first seven verses. You were dead, God made you alive. That is, if you're a believer, if you're a Christian. If Christ is your hope and salvation, you were dead, God made you alive. Now let's imagine you wanted to color just a little bit more than that. You bought a whole new box of pencils and you're like, that seems, I've only used two pencils. So I'll add two more pencils to the collection, different shades, because this is the main part, but you would, it would look something like this. You would color, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. That would, that would kind of capsulize the first three verses. And then the second half, the opposite side, would be, in addition to the main thought, but God made us alive, it would look something like this. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. That's how those first seven verses might be colored. Now, having done... Those seven verses, we launched into last week into verse 8, where Paul summarizes it all by saying, for by grace you've been saved through faith. That, that's Paul's summary of those first seven verses. And if you recognize how dead you were, 
and you recognize the magnificence of the life you have, that's the only possible conclusion you could have. By grace, you've been saved through faith. Then Paul immediately addresses two potential errors. The idea that you're saved by grace through faith. Error number one. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. Nobody should have any misunderstanding about what Paul's talking about when he's talking about death and life. When he's talking about your saved by grace through faith. It's very clear, and this is what we dealt with last week in more detail than my little review of it right now. You did not participate in God's saving work. God saved you entirely. It's an, it's an entire work of God's grace. It wasn't, you do your part and God's promised to do his part. God, God saves by grace. So error number one is, make no mistake about it, You've got nothing to boast about. You can't say, well, I'm glad I finally, you know, found that lasting piece of the uh, jigsaw puzzle so that it was a beautiful picture. You didn't provide any pieces to the jigsaw puzzle called salvation by grace. The second error is kind of the opposite, Paul says, but it's also an explanation of, of what he's just said as well. Paul says, for we are his workmanship... Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What happens a lot of times is the moment you take your stand saying, I'm not for that, everybody assumes, well, then that makes you this. Um, you know, I grew up, my tradition, I grew up for about the first 10 years, Missouri Senate Lutheran, then my parents uh, went to Baptist churches. And in the Baptist tradition, one of the things that was a distinguishing figure, uh, feature is Baptists believed in eternal security. Once saved, always saved. And then there would be other traditions that didn't believe that. Uh, Methodists didn't believe that. Uh, Nazarene churches didn't believe that. Most charismatic kind of churches don't believe that. There, there's a whole group of churches that don't believe that. So if I say... Back in the day, I wouldn't say this now, I don't like that. Like, I'm a Baptist, once saved, always saved. And they're like, well, then it doesn't make any difference what you do. Who cares? If you're, if you're just saved by grace, then it, you don't have to come to church. You don't have to do anything. It's all so simple for you. That's the opposite error. Paul's saying, look, your works did not contribute to your salvation. But Paul says, I'm not saying works aren't important. You were saved for good works. But they didn't contribute to your salvation. They're the result of your salvation. Now, because I had the wedding yesterday, I'm never entirely quite sure what the next slide's going to show. <laughs> I don't think it's a video yet, but it might be. We'll see. Okay, John Bunyan. John Bunyan, we talked about him last week. I gave you a little bit of background information on John Bunyan. Fascinating individual. Uh, somebody who really grasped what it meant that he was saved by grace. John Bunyan is the one who was put in prison or jail. Uh, and he spent a long time in jail for preaching the gospel because in colonial America, before America uh, became a nation in 1776... Uh, they, there, was, there were state churches in many instances. And 
unless you were part of the official state church, it was illegal to preach the gospel. And John Bunyan was saved by the gospel. He was saved by grace, and he's like, I'm preaching anyway. So he preached whenever he could, however he could, to whomever that would listen. And he got thrown in jail for it. And while he was in jail, he wrote Pilgrim's Progress, which, if you haven't read it, uh, it's your loss, especially if you read the children's version. That's the version I like best. And I don't color it. I just like it because it's very understandable. <laughs> but here's what John Bunyan said about grace. He really understands what Paul is writing. John Bunyan says, he wrote a, his own autobiography about salvation, grace abounding to the chief of sinners. Salvation is holy of grace, not only undeserved, but undesired by us until God is pleased to awaken us to a sense of our need of it. And then we find everything prepared that our wants require or our wishes conceive. Yea, that he has done exceedingly beyond what we could either ask or think. Salvation is holy of the Lord and bears those signatures of infinite wisdom, power, and goodness which distinguish all God's works from the puny imitations of men. It is every way worthy of himself, a great, a free, a full, a sure salvation. It is great whether we consider the objects, miserable, hell-deserving sinners, or whether we consider the end, the restoration of such alienated creatures to his image and favor, to immortal life and happiness, or whether we consider the means, the incarnation, humiliation, sufferings and death of his beloved son. It is free without exception of persons or cases, without any conditions or qualifications, but such as he himself performs in them and bestows upon them. He, his, that's commentary on what Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. It is wholly a work of grace. Now, here's where I may have the video that's going to kind of explain faith and works and salvation. Um, I think I last showed this five years ago, so if it seems familiar and you were here five years ago, well, if it seems familiar, it's because you were here five years ago. But uh, it's worth reviewing. I think it's next. We'll see. No, it's not. It's right after this one, though, I'm sure. Paul corrects potential error number one, not of works that goes like this. Faith, works, salvation. Man, talk about your polarizing topics. Everyone has an opinion on them. Can we work our way to heaven? Does it just simply take faith? And what is an authentic faith? Well, let's investigate the arithmetic behind these important questions and see how the truth really adds up. Some people believe that works equals salvation. Simply put, this is man's effort to work his way up to God and become acceptable in his sight. This is the view of religion, that lots of good works equals salvation. However, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace that you have been saved, through faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. Hmm, sounds like something is wrong with our equation. So, let's scratch works and replace it with faith. Surely that's all we need to make our equation correct. Well, we need to tread carefully here. Faith is ultimately what makes us acceptable to God. And we know without faith, it is impossible to please God. But this equation is incomplete. 
James chapter 2 verse 17 says that faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. So, works must be factored into the equation. One popular view of the salvation formula is faith plus works equals salvation. People think that belief in Christ is important, but that salvation is still dependent upon doing enough good with their life. They rightly acknowledge the expectation that works are involved, but they confuse why they're there. It may be subtle, but it's wrong. Why? Well, look at this quick math lesson. We can all agree that 2 plus 3 equals 5. Thus, since this equation is true, it also means that 3 equals 5 minus 2. A true equation holds up regardless of how you move the pieces around. We call them fact families. So let's return to our formula. If faith plus works equals salvation is true, then the formula of faith equals salvation minus works must also be true. And Professor James has already reminded us that this kind of faith just doesn't add up. Let's try this one more time. We are saved by faith. But James does add something to the equation by challenging us with what our faith should look like. It's not that works create our salvation, rather it's that works should accompany our salvation. That's an authentic faith, growing in Christ-likeness in such a way that our lives bear the fruit of good works. And yes, I know what you're thinking. If this fact family is true, then faith minus works equals salvation must also be true. So if you have no works, are you saved? Let's just say while we can celebrate God's amazing grace, the expectation of God's word is that we would see the fruit of your real faith. So while the math adds up, it should bother you that your life does not. The fact is we are saved by faith alone, but the faith which saves is never alone. Still not sure about all of this? Well, you do the math. Okay, we're going to build on that from verse 10, and it looks something like this. The second potential error, which I've already read, for we are, Paul says, we are his workmanship, <coughs> created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. James Montgomery Boyce, excellent pastor, author, uh, passed away uh, in the providence of God too soon. Uh, I would be dead if I were James Montgomery Bo Mo Boyce. Pastored 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. So John Lester, when he was here, he's in Terre Haute now, I think when he lived in Philadelphia and there, his family went uh, to church, they were going when James Montgomery Boyce was pastor. So highly recommend James Boyce. James Boyce says, an evangelical church or a Protestant church is more likely to fall into this error than the first error, uh, at least of our variety. So James Montgomery Boyce puts it like this. In my opinion, the necessity of good works is one of the most neglected yet most essential teachings in the evangelical church today. At the beginning of this study, I contrasted sound Protestant theology with traditional Roman Catholic theology, showing how Protestants teach faith equals justification plus works. The view I've just been expounding. While Catholics teach faith plus works equals justification, clearly Catholic theology is wrong. It goes against what Paul said in verse 8. Not by works so that no one can boast. You've got no work you could do 
that resulted in your salvation. It's a consequence of salvation. He goes on to say, But what are we to say of a theology that has no place for works at all? What are we to say of a teaching that extols justification divorced from sanctification? Forgiveness without a corresponding change in life. What would Jesus himself think of such theology? Yet such teaching prevails among among evangelicals today. That you can be a Christian, saved by faith, and works are entirely absent. He says that's the problem in Protestant theology, or the danger in Protestant theology. So let's look at it. Paul says, for we are his workmanship. That for is explaining something, it's giving a reason for something. When you see the word for in, in language, in English language in general, it's either looking back or it's looking forward. You've got a second for, we're created in Christ Jesus for good works, that's looking forward. You're crea- created in Christ for good works. But the first four, we are his workmanship, is an explanation of what went before. So what went before is this. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It can't be the result of anything you did, because for we're his workmanship. It's his work. Not our work, it's his work. That's how the... That's how the verses all go together. It it couldn't be more clear. There's nothing for you to boast about. The only one going to do any boasting about why anybody is in the kingdom of heaven is God because it was his work, which is what we're going to unpack. Paul says, we are his workmanship. You have been saved through faith. And then the verb tense here, I'm taking from the New English translation rather than I have on my stand there, the English Standard Version, which just says created in Christ Jesus, which really doesn't capture it. We are his workmanship, having been created in Christ Jesus. So, we have been saved by grace through faith. We have been created in Christ Jesus, and we are his workmanship. The only reason why you could say, I am the workmanship of God is because you have been created in Christ Jesus. It's because you have been saved by grace through faith. One necessarily had to come before the other. The workmanship comes after grace. It's the work in progress. I don't know if you realize this. You are a work in progress. You're not a finished project. I am a work in progress. I'm not a finished project. But... By the grace of God, I have been created in Christ Jesus. By the grace of God, I've been saved through faith. And so I'm God's work in progress. That's encouraging because I know I've got rough edges. I know I do things that are not befitting of a Christian. But I'm God's work in progress. And he's committed to me. So we're his workmanship. Having been created in Christ Jesus, it's the in Christ Jesus that I want to draw your attention to right now, because all of God's grace is necessarily and inseparably bound in Christ Jesus. If you haven't gotten this, we've been in Ephesians for, you know, now we're going to be done with uh, a chapter and a half. We'll finish verse 10 today, and then we'll do the second half of chapter 2, start on chapter, not the whole second half. 
but we'll start on the second half next week of chapter 2. But we've done a chapter and a half, and it's taken us a few months to go through it. If you've missed the phrase, in Christ Jesus, you just haven't been paying attention, and you need colored pencils, because then you could color in your Bible, in Him, in Christ, through Him, because He says it over and over. If you were to survey your Bible, it's amazing how often in chapters 1, in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, how frequently He says, this is only true because of Christ. It's not true because of our traditions. It's not true because we were raised right or we were born in America. It's true because of grace. And God in His grace placed us in Christ. It's entirely true because of Christ. Anything that is of an eternal nature that will benefit me because my sins are forgiven and I can be called a son of God in Christ is because of it's in Christ. And I would simply recommend, because I don't want to go through, I don't even have my notes up there. Uh, I would recommend how often Paul talks about being in Christ in that first chapter and a half. Let's, uh, let's move on, though. Secondly, he uses this word created, which harkens back to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created. Ex nihilo, which is a perfect word image for saying, look, it's not your works. Because, like, we didn't contribute or we didn't participate in God creating in six days the heavens and the earth, and he rested on the seventh. We weren't a part of that process. God created. And so he uses the same language. You know what? We are his workmanship, having been created. In fact, that, word, that verb created in the Bible is only used of God. In secular Greek, it's used in, in different ways of making or producing or creating... But in the Bible, it's a word only used of God because truly only God creates. We make, we design, we take things that are there and we do things with them. But creation, that's exclusive of God. So that verb is only used of God in the Bible. And it's a good verb because clearly you've got no works involved in creation in what God chooses to create. The second image that Paul likes to use, I would say the New Testament likes to use, when it wants to emphasize you're saved by grace through faith, if you're not using, using this concept of God creating something, the second powerful image is resurrection. And Paul uses it frequently. You've been raised with Christ and seated in the heavenlies. You've been crucified with Him and you're raised with Him. Guess what? Dead people don't, don't participate in their own resurrection. Now, there's a result of, being, of receiving life. You come out of the tomb. Lazarus came out of the tomb, and they unbound him. But the resurrection is an act of God. The creation is an act of God. Psalm 33, which the men in their last uh, men's breakfast, we, in fact, there's still a couple handouts of, of Psalm uh, the article we read regarding Psalm 33. And Psalm 33 says, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were created. Or maybe it's the earth, or maybe it's both. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By his word, just his word, God creates the heavens and the earth. He said, let there be light. And there was light. It wasn't sometimes like, you know, you got to pull. Well, I mean, Vicky's having a problem. I guess the piano light. You know, sometimes you push the button, it's not coming on, and you got to fiddle, you know, fiddle with it. You got to fiddle with it. God didn't have to fiddle with, like, ugh. 
I said, let there be... I mean, he said it and it was done. 2 Corinthians. God who commanded the light to shine in the darkness has shown the light of his glorious sun in our hearts. He commanded it. It was done. Ephesians chapter 2 will talk about the creating one new man in Christ. The same word for creation is used in chapter 2 and verse 15. But let's move forward. We are his workmanship. That's an interesting word. As a noun, which it is here, it only occurs two times in the New Testament. As a verb, it occurs 579 times in the New Testament. So it's very common to use as a verb. It's very rare to use as a noun. Uh, as, a, as a verb, it has the idea of making something, producing something, uh, and, and it's used in a, the spectrum is pretty large, what it means. It could be kind of rudimentary, or it could be something really exquisite. F.F. F. Bruce was a British scholar. He renders this, he takes that verse and he says, We are God's work of art, his masterpiece. That's, that's how he's understanding it's used, not just a, a rudimentary work, not just I can check it off my list, we are God's work of art, his masterpiece. Now, I'm going to enhance this a little bit. Like, uh, we get an English word based from this Greek word. I think you can probably tell what it is. It's the word poem. We get our English word poem from this, which, which kind of emphasizes it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing. It's a creative thing. It's by great design and intention. We are God's poem. We are God's poem. The only other time that the noun is used, the only other time besides Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 is in Romans 1.20. I backed up to verse 19 so that you have a little bit of context, which is still in the middle of a sentence. You're probably familiar with the passage. It reads like this. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. That is, he's talking about people on earth. God has shown people on earth. For God's invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through his workmanship, through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. So I think you can see the imagery here. Every time you see a sunset, every time you see a rainbow, which was there was a rainbow for the wedding rehearsal dinner. There's a beautiful rainbow outside. The different cloud formations, the waterfalls, the mountains, all the beauty of God's creation. It's his workmanship. It's not a random chance of evolutionary forces that have no God behind them. It's God's workmanship. And when you see those things, give credit where credit is due. Our world is pretty amazing. It's beautiful. And you've seen some beautiful things as I have. I like how, I taught this in uh, vacation Bible school, whatever, a month or so ago, when we were talking about the, God and his character and his persons and his nature. And we were in, uh, briefly, we were in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. And I love it that it said the heavens. It didn't say the forests. It didn't say the waterfalls. It didn't say the mountains. It didn't say the valleys. It didn't say the oceans. All those things declare the glory of God, too, because God made it all. 
but the psalmist said the heavens. Because it doesn't make any difference whether you're in the desert or the Amazon jungle or the Midwest or the East Coast, we can all see the heavens. And so what the psalmist said declares the glory of God is something that every man on earth, every woman on earth can see, provided God has given them sight. And those heavens declare the glory of God. But the amazing thing is, we are his workmanship. Out of all the things God created, it's male and female were originally created in the image of God to reflect his character and his person. And that image was, was horribly marred and destroyed by sin, restored in Christ. So that I've told people this, I don't know that I've ever talked about it in a message before, but I've told people this on an individual basis. Wherever you go in life, you know, you may not stay here your entire life. Wherever you go, wherever you go on vacation, the most beautiful thing you will ever see, no matter where you go, is another human being. Especially when you gather with the church, with those whose image has been restored in Christ. It's not... You know, that's why, that's why in Acts, it's like when Luke is, is chronicling the church, he's like, holy cow, we were in Antioch, and let me tell you about the sunset I saw. Or let me tell you about the waterfall I saw somewhere else, or the Mediterranean on that one day. It's not consumed with all the things that I want to take pictures of when I go on vacation. Because all those things pale in comparison to people created in the image of God. People are his workmanship, especially those created in Christ Jesus, restored in Christ to the image that was lost by sin. Gilda Radner um, was part of, I don't, know, I don't know if she was part of the original, original Saturday Night Live team, but she was part of the, the best years they ever had. Gilda Radner, Jane Curtin, uh, Chevy Chase, Steve Martin, uh, John Belushi. Uh, there were all these characters that were... I mean, their routines were just the best. Uh, Gilda Radner, uh, she was on the newscast. Jane Curtin played the, the you know, give, give the news straight, and then Gilda Radner would come on, and she was called Rosanna, Rosanna Dana, and she would always be like, it's always something. And so she wrote, I guess it's kind of her autobiography. I read it a number of years ago called It's Always Something, and in it she kind of, she talks about, her whole career, like going into... She wound up marrying, by the way, if you didn't know, uh, Gene Wilder. She married Gene Wilder. But she was diagnosed with cancer, an aggressive form of cancer. And so she chronicles that in the book. And uh, she said... I'm going to give you two things, one by Gilda Radner, one different. So far as I know, Gilda Radner never professed faith in Christ before she died. I don't know. I'm not her judge. I don't know what she was acquainted with or what people would have said to her. But it's not in the book. And Gilda Radner is somebody who says something about poetry that I think is profound. I've never forgotten it since I read it. The book was from 1989. Uh, I also wound up finding the audio book on cassette. And so I recorded what she said that I never forgot. It's on the last page of her book, her autobiography. And it's talking a little bit about the cancer. Listen for what she says about poetry. I had wanted to wrap this book up in a neat little package about a girl who is a comedian from Detroit, becomes famous in New York with all the world coming her way, gets this horrible disease of cancer, is brave and fights it, learning all the skills she needs to get through it, 
and then miraculously things neatly tie up and she gets well. I wanted to be able to write on the book jacket, Her Triumph Over Cancer, or She Wins the Cancer War. I wanted a perfect ending, so I sat down to write the book with the ending in place before there even was an ending. Now I've learned, the hard way, that some poems don't rhyme, and some stories don't have a clear beginning, middle, and end. Like my life, this book has ambiguity. Like my life, this book is about not knowing, having to change, taking the moment and making the best of it without knowing what's going to happen next. I've never forgotten that line that she, that she wrote in that book, some poems don't rhyme. Most of us want a poem that rhymes, that sing-songy, seems very balanced, but she had the insight, some poems don't rhyme. And sometimes in your life, you're going to come across a verse that doesn't rhyme, and it's not what you want. But if you're saved by grace, you're still God's workmanship. And he's writing those lines. He's penning those lines, and it is a beautiful thing. So contrast that with uh, Laura Story's song, Blessings, which I'll show from uh, Sing Conference. So I don't know if it was when Darwin and Connie were there or not. But Laura Story was a newlywed, and her husband was diagnosed with a brain tumor. And he had surgery, and it, I think it still affects him to this day. I think one of the videos I saw had been eight years, and he was still very much limited by the surgery he had and the diagnosis. And out of all that experience came a song she wrote called Blessings. It's a song about God's poetry and, and how God knows what is best, the best lines to write in our life. So if you've never appreciated the song before, appreciate it this morning. There's nothing more sweet, more poignant, more tender, more precious than finding Jesus in your hell. Laura Story's song, Blessing, helped me find Jesus in my hell. And it would mean the world if, Laura, you would sing it, as I'm sure it would mean to all of us. Thank you, Julia. Thank you, Laura. Thank you. 
Romans chapter 8 is given to Christians. You know, he works all things together for good to those who know him, who are the called according to his purpose. So the prayer we ought to have for one another, besides weeping with those who weep, is that we would understand the poetry that God is writing. And sometimes the blessing comes through tears. Sometimes the mercy and the longing for the things that are best come through difficult times. That is often, if not almost always, the case. We are his workmanship, having been created in Christ Jesus for good works. Those good works are described many places in Scripture. I won't take the time to look at them. We'll be there in Ephesians chapter 4, 5, 
We'll see some what those good works look like. We're in the first three chapters of Ephesians where Paul's laying the groundwork. He's telling us things that are true if you're a Christian and why they're true. And then he's going to talk about the backside of that equation. What does that kind of faith look like? What kind of works accompany that kind of faith, that kind of grace, that kind of salvation? And it results in certain things. And it'll, he'll be, we'll be challenged in Ephesians as they were challenged in Galatians. And when Paul wrote Colossians, the author of Hebrews wrote the same types of things. We'll look at that moving forward later. It says, which God prepared beforehand. Richard Lenski, our Lutheran friend from last week, talks about this, as do any n- number of other commentators. It's the works themselves that God has prepared. In this case, he's already talked about preparing you. That was in Ephesians 1. But now it's even the works. And you put it all together and you've got a God who, who we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And he who has begun a good work in you will see it through to completion. And part of that work in progress are these works that he's prepared in advance that will mark our steps. Richard Lenski puts it like this. Long in advance of doing a single good work, God himself prepared and made ready the good works in which he wanted us to walk. Even this God did, and not we. All the ways of holiness and righteousness are God's design and preparation. We need not puzzle about and search for what may please God. He has long ago mapped out the entire course. What Paul says is not that God prepared us that we should walk in good works, but that he prepared the good works themselves. I want you to end. I want to end by, and then I'll open it up for comments and questions. Kind of with this passage in mind, not a result of good works so that no one may boast. We are his workmanship, having been created in Christ Jesus for good works. Turn to Matthew 25. And I'll give credit where credit due. William Hendrickson is the one who pointed this out. He's the only author I read that did point it out, and it's positively fascinating. Positively fascinating. Matthew chapter 25. And in Matthew 25, you have a scene of final judgment. A scene of final judgment. It's a familiar passage. I'm, I suspect you've probably read it before. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 831. But this is kind of... Uh, What does this look like in the grand scheme of what God has planned for for creation? It looks something like this, Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord... When did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. 
Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, if I were to add to that just a little bit, there's another scene earlier in Matthew where those that are cast off into eternal fire are going to say, Lord, Lord, remember that? Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and do many wonders in your name? Didn't we do these things? And Jesus says in that instance, depart from me, I never knew you. It's interesting, those that are so surprised by the verdict are boasting their works. Didn't we do this? Didn't we prophesy? Didn't we do work in your name? Not by works. And those that inherit eternal life are doing good works, and, and they're like, when did we do any of that? Because they're not trying to save themselves by their good works. It's a natural consequence of their relationship with Christ. And so he spells it out. When you did it to the least one of these, my brothers, you did it unto me. Not saved by their works. Their salvation was demonstrated by their works. What are your comments and questions?